Welcome to Reading Through the New Testament. I hope you're doing well today. It's good to be with you. This is Pastor Spencer. We are reading in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read through Colossians chapter 2. This is for the week of September 4th through September 10th. So this is the week leading up to the pulled pork festival or whatever we want to call this. Um, September 11th at church. Um, so you should come. It should be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, so we're here reading in Philippians. We're reading in uh, Paul's letters from prison and such, right? So Ephesians, um, Colossians, and Philippians are all like uh, Roman imprisonment epistles the Apostle Paul is writing. So when you're reading these epistles, you're reading the letters of a man who is confined for the sake of the gospel. And you're getting these uh, insights into what makes him tick, what makes the Apostle Paul, what does he value, and what does he want to say to the churches. So we talked about Philippians last week, and uh, we, we talked about it. Um, we'll, we'll go through Colossians. I actually only have two things to read this week. Both are Spurgeon things, from one from Philippians and one from Colossians. So we'll start with Philippians this week, and then we'll, in the middle of this, we'll do a quick little thing about Colossians, about what it, when it was written and things like that, and then we'll do something from Colossians as well, okay? So let's start here. Philippians, so Paul here, right, he's, we talked about last week, he, to, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Uh, Paul here talks about Christ's humility, and uh, beautiful verses here in 2, 5 through 11, talks about how Christ humbled himself but has been exalted by God. Um, it calls us to shine his lights in the world. talks about in chapter 3 about how he gave up everything uh, for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, uh, my Lord. He's continuing to strain on towards the goal, and then he closes with some exhortations in chapter 4 about how we should live now in light of this truth of Christ. But I want to do something now here from Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. He says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So uh, this is a sermon from Spurgeon called The Exaltation of Christ, based off of these verses. And so he's going to talk about the how what Christ's exaltation means to us. The first thing he's going to talk about here is the fact that the very fact of Christ's exaltation is comforting to a true Christian. He says it's comforting, first of all, because we have a relationship to Christ. He says, first, he has in his own opinion, and not in his own opinion only, but in reality, a relationship to Christ. And therefore, he feels an interest in the success of his kinsmen. Ye have watched the father's joy when step by step his boy has climbed to opulence or fame. Ye have marked the mother's eye as it sparkled with delight when her daughter grew up to womanhood and burst forth in all the grandeur of beauty. Ye have asked why they should feel such interest, and ye have been told because the boy was his or the girl was hers. They delighted in the advancement of their little ones because of their relationship. Had there been no relationship, they might have been advanced to kings, emperors, or queens, and they would have felt but little delight. 
But from the fact of kindred, each step was invested with a deep and stirring interest. Now it is so with, a, with this Christian. He feels that Jesus Christ, the glorified prince of the kings of the earth, is his brother. While he reverences him as God, he admires him as the man, Christ, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And he delights in his calm and placid moments of communion with Jesus to say to him, O Lord, thou art my brother. But also he does this because the Christian has unity in the cause. Spurgeon writes, he feels that when Christ is exalted, it is himself exalted in some degree, seeing he has sympathy with his desire of promoting the great cause and honor of God in the world. Thirdly, also, the Christian has a real union with Christ. Spurgeon says this, It is a doctrine of revelation seldom descanted on, but never too much thought of, the doctrine that Christ and his members are all one. Know ye not, beloved, that every member of Christ's church is a member of Christ himself? We are of his flesh and of his bones, part of his great mystical body. And when we read that our head is crowned, O rejoice, ye members of his, his feet or his hands. Though the crown is not on you, yet being on your head, you share the glory, for you are one with him. See Christ yonder sitting at the Father's right hand? Believer, he is the pledge of thy glorification. He is the surety of thine acceptance. And moreover, he is thy representative. Fourthly, there is an entire surrender of one's whole being to the great work of seeking to honor him. As long as there is a particle of selfishness remaining in us, it will mar our sweet rejoicing in Christ. Till we get rid of it, we shall never feel constant joy. I do think that the root of sorrow is self. If we once got rid of that, sorrow would be sweet, sickness would be health, sadness would be joy, penury would be wealth, so far as our feelings with regard to them are concerned. They might not be changed, but our feelings under them would be vastly different. If you would seek happiness, seek it at the roots of your selfishness. Cut up your selfishness, and you will be happy. So, there's great comfort in Christ's exaltation. But then Spurgeon is going to talk about now, what's the reason why, the reason for the, of Christ's exaltation? Let's look about this. He says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, Why? Because he, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and because obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. Let us consider for a moment that depth of degradation to which Christ descended, and then, my beloved, it will give you joy to think that for that very reason his manhood was highly exalted. Do you mark him as he speaks? Note the marvelous eloquence which pours from his lips, and see how the crowds attend him. But do you hear in the distance the growling of the thunders of calumny and scorn? Listen to the words of his accusers. They say he is a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber a friend of publicans and sinners. He has a devil and is mad. All the whole vocabulary of abuse is exhausted by vituperation upon him. He is slandered, abused, persecuted. Stop! Do you think that he is by this cast down, by this degraded? No, for this very reason, God hath highly exalted him. Mark the shame and spitting that have come upon the cheek of yonder man of sorrows. See his hair plucked with cruel hands. Mark ye how they torture him and how they mock him. Do you think this that this is all dishonorable to Christ? 
It is apparently so, but listen to this. He became obedient, and therefore God hath highly exalted him. Do you mark him in your imagination nailed to yonder cross? O eyes, ye are full of pity with tears standing thick. Oh, how I mark the floods gushing down his cheeks. Do you see his hands bleeding and his feet too gushing gore? Behold him, the bulls of Bashan gird him round and the dogs are hounding him to death. Hear him, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. The earth startles with affright. A god is groaning on a cross. What, does not this dishonor Christ? No, it honors him. Each of the thorns becomes a brilliant in his diadem of glory. The nails are forged into his scepter, and his wounds do clothe him with the purple of empire. The treading of the winepress hath stained his garments, but not with stains of scorn and dishonor. The stains are embroideries upon his royal robes forever. The treading of that winepress hath made his garments purple with the empire of a world, and he is the master of a universe forever. O Christian, sit down and consider that thy master did not mount from earth's mountains into heaven, but from her valleys. It was not from the heights of bliss on earth that he strode to bliss eternal, but from depths of woe he mounted up to glory. Oh, what a stride was that when, at one mighty step from the grave to the throne of the highest, the man Christ, the God, did gloriously ascend. And yet reflect... He, in some way, mysterious yet true, was exalted because he suffered. Believer, there is comfort for thee here, if thou wilt take it. If Christ was exalted through his degradation, so shalt thou be. Count not thy steps to triumph by thy steps upward, but by those which are seemingly downward. The way to heaven is downhill. He who would be honored forever must sink in his own esteem, and often in that of his fellow men. Oh, think not of yon fool who is mounting to heaven by his own light opinions of himself and by the flatteries of his fellows. That he shall safely reach paradise. Nay, that shall burst on on which he rests, and he shall fall and be broken in pieces. But he who descends into the mines of suffering shall find unbounded riches there, And he who dives into the depths of grief shall find the pearl of everlasting life within within the caverns, I guess is what it would be. The person who, let's also see here, he says, the person who exalted Christ. Christ did not crown himself, he says. God also hath highly exalted him. The crown was put upon the head of Christ by God, and there is to me a very sweet reflection in this, that the hand that put the crown on Christ's head will one day put the crown on ours, that the same mighty one who crowned Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, will crown us when he shall make us kings and priests unto him forever. Now just pause over this thought, that Christ did not crown himself, but that his father crowned him, that he did not elevate himself to the throne of majesty, but that his father lifted him there and placed him on his throne. Why, reflect thus, man never highly exalted Christ. Put this then in opposition to it, God also hath highly exalted him. Man hissed him, mocked him, hooted him. Words were not hard enough, they would use stones. They took up stones again to stone him, and stones failed, 
Nails must be used, and he must be crucified. And then there comes the taunt, the jeer, the mockery, whilst he hangs languishing on the death cross. Man did not exalt him. Set the black picture there. Now put this with this glorious, this bright scene side by side with it, and one shall be a foil to the other. Man dishonored him. God also exalted him. There's the end of what we'll read today from that. That is a powerful passage, I think. A wonderful reminder to us, I think, of... Um, I love that phrase where he says, the way to heaven is downhill. That goes against everything that we, we would expect. But that's the way it worked with Christ. The way to exaltation was by going down, taking the form of a servant, being obedient to the to the death of the cross. Um, that was the way for Christ, and whenever he was exalted, and we are in him, and the pathway is the same for us. The way to heaven is downward. He says, count not your steps to triumph by your steps upward, but by those which are seemingly downward. That takes faith, doesn't it? Why do I go through so much suffering in this life? Why um, do I suffer uh, maybe mentally or spiritually? Or why do I have so many hardships in my life? Um, all of those struggles with sin and my heart, with selfishness. Why? Well, maybe that's one of the things God's doing is to breaking us so that one day he can exalt us. Very good comforting thing. I, I, I think that was a beautiful, beautiful sermon there. Um, obviously, I, I didn't read the whole thing. It was edited, but yeah. Okay, so Paul and Philippians. I want to move now to Colossians, okay, because I know there's so much more we could do in Philippians, and there's great passages of Scripture there. Um, but we're just going to do two things today. Um, he talks about Colossians. Now, um, Colossians we're going to go into. Uh, this, again, is another one of those prison epistles that Paul's writing. Around the year 60, writing to the church at Colossae, obviously, to combat the false teaching. And he's going to show it by highlighting this, the, uh, the teaching with the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. Um, one New Testament introduction says this, Paul's letter to the Colossians is perhaps the most Christocentric letter in the New Testament. It's the most Christ-centered letter in the New Testament. Um, Paul here is f zooming in on all that we have in Christ because there were some people who were saying, well, Jesus is good, but if you really want to get the fullness, if you really want the more, you know, there's a second level for you to get up onto. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Every single thing we need is found in Jesus Christ. And a great verse to look at this overall theme is chapter 1, verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of Christ. And this is Spurgeon's sermon, All Fullness in Christ, from Colossians 1, 19. So he's going to ask some questions about what this fullness is, um, where it's at, um, when it is, and uh, why it's there, I think. So first of all, what is all this? What is this when he says all fullness? What is this all fullness? Spurgeon right. Spurgeon preached, and this is in the sermon. Two mighty words. Fullness, a substantial, comprehensive, expressive word in itself, and all, a great little word, including everything. When combined in the expression all fullness, 
we have before us a superlative wealth of meaning. Blessed be God for those two words. Our hearts rejoice to think that there is such a thing in the universe as all fullness. For in the most of mortal pursuits, utter barrenness is found. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Blessed be the Lord forever that he has provided a fullness for us. For in us, by nature, there is all emptiness and utter vanity. In me, that is, in my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. I will ring the silver bell again, all fullness. And another note charms us. It tells us that Christ is substance and not shadow, fullness and not foretaste. This is good news for us, for nothing but realities will meet our case. Types may instruct, but they cannot actually save. Ceremonies under the old dispensation were precious because they set forth the realities yet to be revealed. But in Christ Jesus, we deal with the realities themselves. And this is a happy circumstance for us. For both our sins and our sorrows are real, and only substantial mercies can counteract them. In Jesus, we have the substance of all that the symbols set forth. He is our sacrifice, our altar, our priest, our incense, and our tabernacle are all in all. All fullness is a wide, far-reaching, all-comprehending term, and in its abundant store it offers another source of delight. What joy these words give to us when we remember that our vast necessities demand a fullness, yea, all fullness, before they can be supplied. A little help will be of no use to us, for we are altogether without strength. A limited measure of mercy will only mock our misery. A low degree of grace will never be enough to bring us to heaven. Defiled as we are with sin, beset with dangers, encompassed with infirmities, assailed by temptations, molested with afflictions, and all the while bearing about with us the body of this death. But all fullness, ay, that will suit us. Here is exactly what our desperate estate demands for its recovery. Had the Savior only put out his finger to help our exertions, or had he only stretched out his hand to perform a measure of salvation's work while he left us to complete it, our soul had forever dwelt in darkness. In these words, all fullness, we hear the echo of his death cry, it is finished. We are to bring nothing but to find all in him, yea, the fullness of all in him. We are simply to receive out of his fullness grace for grace. We are not asked to contribute, nor required to make up deficiencies, for there are none to make up. All, all is laid up in Christ. All that we shall want between this place and heaven, all we could need beyond between the gates of hell, where we lay in our blood to the gates of heaven, where we shall find welcome and mission, is treasured up for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The expression here used denotes that there is in Christ Jesus the fullness of the Godhead, as it is written, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Hence, nothing is too hard for him. Power, wisdom, truth, immutability, and all the attributes of God are in him and constitute a fullness inconceivable and inexhaustible. Fullness, moreover, dwells in our Lord not only intrinsically from his nature, but as the result of his mediatorial work. He achieved by sufferings, as well as possessed by nature a wonderfulness. He carried on his shoulders the load of our sin. He expiated by his death our guilt. And now he has merit with the Father, infinite, inconceivable, a fullness of desert. 
the Father has stored up in Christ Jesus as in a reservoir for the use of all his people, his eternal love and his unbounded grace, that it may come to us through Christ Jesus and that we may glorify him. Turn the thought round again and remember that all fullness dwells in Christ towards God and towards men. All fullness towards God, and I mean all that God requires of man, all that contents and delights the eternal mind, so that once again with complacency he may look down on his creature and pronounce him very good. The awfulness of Christ is also manward, and that in respect of both the sinner and the saint. There is a fullness in Christ Jesus which the seeking sinner should behold with joyfulness. What dost thou want, sinner? Thou wantest all things, but Christ is all. The infinite God himself gives himself to you in the person of his dear son. And he saith to you, all things are yours. The Lord is the portion of your inheritance and of your cup. Infinity is ours. Be who gave us, or he who gave us his own son has in that very deed given us all things. Hath he not said, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. If all the good things are in him which a sinner can require to make him accountable with God, then let the sinner come at once through such a mediator. Let doubts and fears vanish at the sight of the mediatorial fullness. Jesus must be able to save to the uttermost, since all fullness dwells in him. Come, sinner, come and receive him. Believe thou in him, and thou shalt find thyself made perfect in Christ Jesus. Secondly, where is it placed? In him, Spurgeon writes, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Where else could all fullness have been placed? There was wanted a vast capacity to contain all fullness. Where dwells there a being with nature capacious enough to compass within himself all fullness? As well might we ask, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the span? and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. To him only could it belong to contain all fullness, for he must be equal with God, the infinite. How suitable was the Son of the Highest, who was by him as one brought up with him, to become the grand storehouse of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and grace and salvation. Perhaps the sweetest thought is that the all fullness is fitly placed in Christ Jesus, because in him there is a suitability to distribute it, so that we may obtain it from him. How could we come to God himself for grace? For even our God is a consuming fire. But Christ Jesus, while God is also like ourselves, well, but Jesus Christ, while God is also man like ourselves, truly man, of a meek, lowly spirit, and therefore easily approachable. They who know him delight in nearness to him. Is it not sweet that all fullness should be treasured up in him who was the friend of publicans and sinners and who came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost? The man who took the child up on his knee and said, Suffer the little children to come unto me. The man who was tempted in all points like as we are. The man who touched the sick, nay, who bore their sicknesses. The man who gave his hands to the nails and his heart to the spear, that blessed man, into the print of whose nails his disciple Thomas put his finger, and into whose side he thrust his hand. It is he, the incarnate God, in whom all fullness dwells. Come then, and receive of him you who are the weakest, the most mean and most sinful of men. Come at once, O sinner, and fear not. 
Let it be noted here, however, very carefully, that while fullness is treasured up in Christ, it is not said to be treasured up in the doctrines of Christ, though they are full and complete. And we need no other teachings when the Spirit reveals the Son in us. Nor is it said to be treasured up in the commands of Christ, although they are amply sufficient for our guidance. But it is said, it pleased the Father that in Him, in His person, should all fullness dwell. In him, as God incarnate dwelleth in all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, not as a myth, a dream, a thought, a fiction, but as a living, real personality. We must lay hold of this. I know that the fullness dwells in him officially as prophet, priest, and king, but the fullness lies not in the prophetic mantle, nor in the priestly ephod, nor in the royal vesture, but in the person that wears all these. All fullness is in him radically. If there be fullness in his work, or his gifts, or his promises, all is derived from his person, which gives weight and value to all. All the promises are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. He asks next, why is it placed here? Well, of course, it's because it pleased the Father. Spurgeon says, none so meet to be glorified as the Savior who made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and being found in fashion as a man humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. It is but justice that the grace which he has brought to us should be treasured up in him. And while justice speaks, wisdom will not withhold her voice. Wise art thou, O Jehovah, to treasure up grace in Christ. For to him men can come, and to him coming as unto a living stone, chosen of God and precious, men find him precious also to their souls. The Lord has laid our hell in the right place, for he has laid it upon one that is mighty. And who is as loving as he is mighty, as ready as he is able to save Moreover, in the fitness of things, the Father's pleasure is the first point to be considered, for all things ought to be the good, to be to the good pleasure of God. It is a great underlying rule of the universe that all things were created for God's pleasure. God is the source and fountain of eternal love, and it is but meet that he should convey it to us by what channel he may elect. Bowing, therefore, in lowly worship at his throne, we are glad that in this matter the fullness dwells where it perpetually satisfies the decree of heaven. It is well that it pleased the Father. Lastly, when. When is all fullness in Jesus, Spurgeon writes. It is there in all time, past, present, and to come. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Fullness, then, was in Christ of old, is in Christ today, will be in Christ forever, Perpetuity is here indicated. All fullness was, is, shall be in the person of Jesus Christ. Every saint saved under the old dispensation found the fullness of his salvation in the coming Redeemer. Every saint saved since the advent is saved through the self-same fullness. From the streaming font of the wounds of Christ on Calvary, redemption flows evermore, and as long as there is a sinner to be saved or one elect soul to be engathered, Christ's blood shall never lose its power. The fullness of merit and grace shall abide the same. While the expression dwell indicates perpetuity, does it not it indicate constancy and accessibility? A man who dwells in a house is always to be found there. It is his home. The text seems to me to say that this fullness of grace is always to be found in Christ, ever abiding in him. Above all, we, hear, we see here immutability. 
all fullness dwells in Christ. That is to say, it is never exhausted nor diminished. On the last day, wherein this world shall stand before it is given up to be devoured with fervent heat, there shall be found as much fullness in Christ as in the hour when the first sinner looked upon him and was lightened. Okay. Well, that I think is a helpful sermon introduction there to Colossians. Because that's really what Paul is trying to highlight is the fullness, the perfection, the all fullness that is found in Jesus Christ. You don't need anything else. So as you've received him, Paul will write, so walk in him. Um, You don't need to go with uh, visions and angels and do all of these other techniques to find Jesus or to find God or to be more acceptable with God or be more spiritual. As Spurgeon points out there, in Christ, all fullness is pleased to dwell. We, he is, I love the image of a reservoir. He is the, he is the one in whom God has placed all that fullness for us. And we receive it from him by faith. Everything is finished. Come, dine, eat, because everything we need is found in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Okay, we'll continue in Colossians next week and uh, keep reading. Thanks so much. Take care. God bless.